welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We look to Acts chapter 8. Sorry I'm a little hoarse today, folks, but uh, uh, we'll power through here and been dealing with something for a couple weeks since I came back from camp, summer camp with the youth, but uh, I am getting better and um, look forward to sir, uh, actually sharing this uh, passage with us today, the final in our series of Philip the Evangelist. You know, having revealed that the gospel has reached Jerusalem, then Judea, now even to the far reaches of Samaria, the question remains, you know, how far will God go? How far will God go to save somebody? Uh, and that question receives a fascinating answer today as our passage Beginning in Acts chapter 8 and verse 25 will force you to answer a second question. How far are you willing to go? I'll begin today by simply reading the entire account from verses 25 through 40. Quite a long passage. Uh, This is Acts chapter 8. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join his, this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? The eunuch said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate this generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and and the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Well, so we, we have a eunuch on an isolated desert road reading Isaiah 53 at the exact same time that God brought a missionary evangelist to his carriage. Now, obviously, any reasonable theologian would conclude that this, this scene is surely a combination of random time, space, and chance. No. No. No, this random encounter is about as likely as the whole universe, all matter, cold and dark, uh, engineering its own DNA and spawning life through a complexity of species plus human consciousness along the way over billions and billions of years in the absence of a divine creator. It just doesn't happen. Our encounters, likewise, are not random. And just like the divine order of creation that we see as we walk out our doors, uh, the event depicted here uh, does not randomly occur without a, so- without a sovereign redeemer who is both willing and and able to relentlessly pursue his elect even to the ends of the earth. God would have it that as Philip approached, the eunuch was in the midst of reading a passage specifically about Jesus, actually a very precise location in a suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53. And Philip even heard him reading it out loud as this was commonplace in that day, reading aloud. I actually strongly encourage you to do this. As you are waiting for your tires to be changed uh, in the lobby, I would open your Bible and begin reading aloud to everyone in earshot. He was led as a sheep to slaughter And as a lamb before its shears is silent, uh, so he does not open his mouth. And and then you will see what kind of response you get. I can almost assure it will not be good. Uh, As in all likelihood, those who are hearing, uh, who would hear, uh, are not being called by God. But we notice that Philip here isn't isn't using an evangelism technique. Uh, It was rather one of God's sheep himself who had been reading. And I I once heard it said by someone somewhere, uh, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, uh, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one who is straying? Jesus suggests yes in Matthew 18. And that man goes about rejoicing after finding that lost sheep. Um, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. 
says Jesus. So God is the one who is out seeking. He is the one who is saving. And pay close attention as we, we observe what the eunuch has just read. Very important here. You know, we can be very confident that being wise and uh, a very accomplished man, the eunuch, a high official placed in charge of uh, the queen's entire treasury, uh, he doesn't read like modern evangelicals today. He began reading from the beginning of Isaiah. He didn't just randomly flip open Isaiah to a page and then place his finger on it and claim for himself a promise. Uh, No, he's very alert to the preceding context as he has been reading. Uh, What is the preceding context? This is fascinating. Two verses he had just finished reading say this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here's a question I would have asked if I would have found myself in the eunuch's shoes. Who? Who? Uh, Of whom does this prophet say this? Is it of himself or someone else? Who was pierced for our transgressions? And who was crushed for our iniquities? The answer is of the utmost concern for this eunuch. It, it must be for everyone present here today. As, as verse 27 reveals the eunuch, he's, he's just returning from Jerusalem, a, a visit to worship the Lord God of Israel named Yahweh. And since virtually all Christians had been purged from Jerusalem by this point, due to persecution and and the events surrounding Saul, the Pharisee, uh, those few remaining were under scrutiny, close surveillance. Uh, when this eunuch arrived at the temple to worship, uh, there weren't Christians there worshiping in joy. Uh, he was not told who. Instead, he was told what. As he was informed of at least two things by the temple priesthood, as he arrived. Uh, Number one is this. Here we Jews worship the Lord. Yahweh is his name. And we do it through sacrificed animals and burnt offerings. Now, of course, the eunuch would have already known this, uh, keenly aware. He had come to Jerusalem for this very specific purpose, the intent to worship the God of Israel. Therefore, he is what we would conclude to be a Jewish proselyte. A proselyte is, a, is an individual, a Gentile, who, who's ceremonially converted to Old Covenant Judaism and who would have received the mark of circumcision. Uh, there, there were a number of these proselytes from neighboring countries and Gentiles from surrounding nations in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Uh, They had by 
Faith embraced the gospel preached by Peter. You can find that recorded in chapter 2 and verse 10. There were already proselytes who had been converted. Some want to dispute this fact with the eunuch that he, they would say was not a proselyte, but then, of course, it's incumbent upon us to realize that this Ethiopian man is a Gentile, and he came to worship Yahweh as a proselyte Jew. Later on in Scripture, um, there's going to be placed great emphasis upon the fact that it is Cornelius who becomes the first uncircumcised Gentile who is directly converted to Christ without having to convert to Judaism first through circumcision. We'll find that it is at the mouth of Peter that the Gentiles, the straight Gentiles, first hear. Uh, So this eunuch had arrived in Jerusalem as a converted Jew. But there exists an additional problem Actually, a bigger problem. He is a eunuch. This means not to be graphic, but it means that his testicles have either been removed or they have been crushed. This is for the purpose of reducing his testosterone and quenching his libido wasn't uncommon for court officials in that day of nations who would have access to either a king's harem or to the queen or to also the princesses uh, to be castrated, that they would remain obedient to the throne and not obedient to their sex drives. But we learned during our earlier scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter 3 that the Mosaic law is very clear, states in, in quite severe terms that under the old covenant, quote, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That prohibition, a very strict prohibition, had been in place to graphically emphasize how this old covenant Well, it had differed greatly from the new. In the fact that the beneficiaries of the old covenant, Israel, uh, they were to be perpetuated genetically. It's at Mount Sinai where the Mosaic covenant was given to the physical offspring of Abraham and to Isaac and, and to Jacob and the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. And remembering that God's promise would be eventually born among a seed in Israel, it's a major reason all all males were to be circumcised. It is that God's blessing under the old covenant uh, was, and note how I use the past tense, was preserved through genetically identifiable offspring uh, leading up to the advent of the Messiah, Christ. Additionally, the design of the Old Covenant uh, among Israel's lineage, it was to ensure that those 12 tribes would not be absorbed into the surrounding cultures. The nation 
God had determined must remain identifiable and distinct until the identity of the Savior could be determined. Who would he be? There were many prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament uh, that were dependent upon him both being a physical and an identifiable heir of King David. He, he He was promised that he would literally reign from the throne of David and rule over a kingdom that would have no end. That that includes the Davidic covenant. And, And once that heir of David, his name is Jesus, was born in Bethlehem uh, and following his resurrection and ascension to becoming seated at the right hand of God uh, and seated on David's throne, Acts 2 verse 30, uh, preserving Israel's lineage at that point and the old covenant we're told in Hebrews 8 verse 13 are now obsolete. They're outdated. If you remember our study from earlier on in Acts and the day of Pentecost, uh, there were announced 12 replacements under the new covenant. There were Peter, Andrew, James, John, the other. The 12 replacements for the 12 tribes of Israel are the apostles. Uh, If you remember, we noted at that time uh, 12 men, none of whom have any physical offspring recorded in Scripture. None. And this is because the new covenant differs in that it is not perpetuated through genetics, which itself, who who you were born to and who your parents were, never guaranteed salvation under the old covenant anyhow. Most Hebrews perished. The covenant was promised to a people until the Messiah came, but just because you were born into Israel, never never assured that you belonged to God or would trust in Yahweh, their God. Yet the Mosaic law included a prohibition. It's a prohibition where the eunuch found himself way out on the fringe. He he was strictly forbidden from the assembly of worship. This is all he had come to Jerusalem for, was to worship the Lord Yahweh. Uh, But in approaching this temple, uh, this eunuch would have found himself, quite honestly, a eunuch would have found himself less welcome than a hippie wearing sandals at a fundamentalist revival. They'd tell him, son, You ain't welcome here. And and once turned away, he quite likely would have felt very lost without the hope of redemption in a dark and sinful world until somebody placed a scroll of Isaiah in his hand. It's possible that he bought it at the temple gift store. I don't know exactly where he got it. No way to know for certain. I don't know. Uh, But I suspect somebody who had observed this eunuch's plight, perhaps even a Christian, perhaps even an apostle hiding out in Jerusalem, had handed the eunuch a scroll and said, Here, read this. 
Had the eunuch approached Jerusalem with a repentant heart, a remorseful heart, uh, did he recognize that he fell short of the law's requirements, short of the Ten Commandments? Of course he did. It's a a reason he converted to Judaism and set himself out to visit Jerusalem in the first place. Was the eunuch aware from the beginning that his defect, his physical defect, uh, made him unacceptable at the temple, unacceptable to join the assembly of the Lord? Well, if he hadn't known before, uh, he surely is aware now that he is ceremonially, ceremonially an outcast. Is there any hope? Is there anything for the eunuch to grasp onto traveling home to Ethiopia on a desert road alone? He's been informed that Scripture refers to him, describes him as a dry tree. Under the old covenant, he can bear no fruit. He can produce no offspring. His manhood is is not only permanently disfigured, and, and he is a dead branch. He's also found himself barred from worship. And the only place in the planet that the old covenant allowed atonement for sin to be made Then along comes Philip. And at the command of God's Spirit, Philip is walking on a desert road south towards Ethiopia. Same direction that the eunuch is traveling. And I imagine the eunuch's carriage traveling away from Jerusalem probably at some point overtakes and passes Philip. There's times when we visualize this, what's called a chariot sometimes, the same word as carriage, uh, something, we look at it as something that would be driven by Ben-Hur. You know, two wheels, and he's got his whip and his spear and everything. No, that, that's, it's much more likely that this eunuch uh, is traveling in a large covered carriage. He has a driver. Uh, potentially, there are several other, other members of his entourage uh, that would have accompanied a man of this stature anywhere that he would go. He was of high rank. Uh, he was in charge of the queen's entire treasury. The eunuch's not driving. But in verse 29, he's riding in the back and reading Isaiah, when the Spirit told Philip, go up and join this carriage. In verse 30, we find that Philip ran up. I I imagine him catching up from behind. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, "Uh, do you understand what you are reading? And you know, how fortunate. Wow. We conclude, this... This Holy Spirit really guided this evangelist. That's really fortunate for God to do that. Uh, God verbally prompted Philip. And we aren't sure where this source of the voice is. Normally, Scripture categorizes visions and dreams uh, as something to an individual internally. God speaking as an external voice coming from somewhere. It's inconsequential to how we interpret the passage. The text doesn't say. Uh, but we, in our enormous wisdom, 
quickly determined, boy, that is a real evangelist there. Yes, yes. That spirit guides him, and Philip is responsive. He follows the spirit's, spirit's prompting. Now that's what an evangelist does. And we immediately dismiss all personal responsibility in ourselves because, you know, the Holy Spirit surely does not speak verbally to us today. In fact, some of you admit when you're alone, you know, at times when I'm alone, you'd say, I've listened closely. I've listened for a voice. I thought I did hear a voice one time, but instead it was only evidence of last night's chili coming up bubbling up inside. No, no, the, the Spirit has never audibly spoken to me. Really? Have you ever tried reading the Bible out loud? Here's a few examples. You can try it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Or try this one. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Or read this aloud. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Uh, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But, but I think God's Spirit is still coming through loud and clear today. In fact, concerning the, the Holy Spirit speaking, the the sword of the Spirit, uh, you and I actually have a great advantage over Philip. He didn't have the entirety of the New Testament in his hand. You do. It hadn't been written yet. So, uh, for a season, the Spirit improvised and in some remote situations for a brief period of time before the New Testament was complete, God spoke when it was needed. Boy, but if uh, you and I are still waiting to share the gospel until we hear a voice, we, we might be spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind already. God is speaking through His Word today and through His Spirit uh, more clearly than He ever has at any previous time. You, you hold the evidence right in your hand. Philip just wasn't quite as unresponsive as we typically are. So he sensed an open door for the gospel. He, he joined the eunuch, says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch responded, well, well, how could I unless somebody guides me? And Philip invited, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And responding to Philip's gentle nudge, the door was open. Colossians 4 describes this as an open door for the word. 
We're told to pray for it. Are you praying for it? Are you pressing for the open door? Seeing if there is a crack. Who initiated the conversation here? It was Philip. It was an evangelist who proved that he was determined he was going to engage at the command of the Lord. We already know the context of the unit's question. Uh, the verse he had just read said, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And a eunuch finding himself excluded from worship asks, I, I would imagine with some degree of desperation, who? You know, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Is it of himself or is it someone else? And there, sensing the man's desperation, Philip opened his mouth and begin, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Is the Holy Spirit present at this scene? Is he active? Is the Holy Spirit active here? Well, it's he who told Philip to go up and join the chariot. It's he, the Holy Spirit, who will snatch Philip away at the end of our passage, the conclusion. And in comparison to our previous scene in Samaria, is the Spirit here still waiting until Peter and John arrive? We have to wait as we did the last context for Peter and John, the apostles, to come. No, no. Here, the Holy Spirit is out taking the lead. God's out front. By His Word, He is leading and guiding Philip to engage. And so, verse 35, we're told that Philip preached Jesus to him. Preach there um, is literally the Greek word evangelizo. It's evangelized him. Philip evangelized him. He convinced him through his words beginning with this very scripture. So how far did God go? How far does Philip go? Well, the answer is as far out into the desert as we have to. Whatever, whatever it takes to accomplish God's redemption. And Philip begins to proclaim Jesus from the Old Testament. You know, he then told the eunuch, we can be assured, uh, what happened at Pentecost and how the spirit that was promised by the prophet Joel had now been poured out in Israel. Uh, Philip communicated that in the symbolism of immersion in water, believers in Christ had been making a declaration by faith that they're fully cleansed of their sins, also identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's one more text that I guarantee Philip showed him. This is because the scroll of Isaiah was sitting right there. I assume we all know that Isaiah is the most prolific prophet and writer of the Old Testament when it comes to predicting Jesus Christ, describing the sacrifice of God's Messiah and the forgiveness and grace that we would receive through him being pierced for our iniquities. 
That uh, scroll, by the way, Isaiah, was written 800 years before Christ was born, so specific in detail about the suffering of Jesus at the cross that Orthodox Jews today normally will refuse to acknowledge the content of the scroll. That is how specific Isaiah is about the suffering of Christ. Uh, Jews will acknowledge. uh, the, the nation will acknowledge Israel, uh, Isaiah is a great prophet, but they will not read the content in their synagogues. But the eunuch had learned under the old covenant uh, that he was execu- uh, excluded from participation. He had no hope of producing offspring. But what about the promises of God that are offered under the new covenant in Christ? Is there any hope for the eunuch in Jesus? Write this reference down, Isaiah 56, 3. I will read it for you. The eunuch had not gotten there yet because it comes after Isaiah 53. Follows Isaiah 53. That was the proclamation of the suffering servant who bears our iniquities in his body. Next then, of course, becomes Isaiah 54, uh, where God promises that there would be fertility restored in Zion, even for a barren woman. Next comes Isaiah 55, where the Lord Yahweh extends a free offer of grace and mercy to all. Isaiah 55 there says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost, says the Lord. And delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's Isaiah 55. That's the eternal covenant. That that is the new covenant that is promised in Christ. Uh, That is the context Think how the following sounds, Isaiah 55, to an Ethiopian, a foreigner who has found himself outside of Israel. Uh, Isaiah 55 writes, uh, says, Behold, speaking of the Lord, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you will, uh, that knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. That is a reference to Jesus, the son of David. Isaiah writes, For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, for he will abundantly pardon you. That's Isaiah 55. Then finally comes Isaiah 56, verse 3. Uh, The eunuch, as I said, had not yet reached this page. Consider the sweet sound for a eunuch. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from this people. Say, don't let the foreigner say that you'll be separated. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. 
Now we're speaking under the new everlasting covenant. Will the eunuchs be excluded and discarded under the new covenant? No. No, the Lord proclaims through Isaiah to them, speaking of the eunuchs, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a better a name better than that of the sons and daughters of Israel. I will give them, the eunuchs, an everlasting name which will not be cut off. That is a play on words there. (laughs) Sorry. It means the one who has been cut off will not be cut off. Will the eunuch produce offspring under the new covenant? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The barren woman, the single person, the childless, even the eunuch share the same promise because the new covenant is not spawned through genetics. God's kingdom is built through spiritual offspring by faith. In fact, it's now even possible for eunuchs to enjoy an advantage in king in God's kingdom. They're like, how is that? How could they possibly enjoy an advantage? Jesus responding to a comment made by his disciples, this is in Matthew chapter 19, it was concerning divorce. Jesus says what would have previously have been unthinkable under the old covenant, and it was when his disciples had been concluded, had concluded, uh, if we mustn't divorce under any circumstance, it's better we not marry. And Jesus' reply said, Well, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Aha. Uh-huh. It may be better to not marry? Yes, says Jesus. How so? Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. They have a birth defect. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. That would describe our friend in our passage. And Jesus says there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Who makes themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom? Eunuchs for the kingdom are those who do not marry. They do not bear children but who enjoy the Holy Spirit's gift of undistracted service to the Lord. It means they devote themselves wholly, fully to our Lord's service. It's not a gift of singleness per se, uh, but remaining single for the express purpose of kingdom work. Under the new covenant, these are actually at an advantage. Even the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's my opinion, it would be better if you all would be like me, single, wholly devoted to the kingdom, without children. 
Now, each has their own gift. I personally would be completely lost without my wife. I wouldn't make it. But the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35, it can be better to not marry. And Paul writes, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Offering yourself today as a spiritual eunuch, that is a holy calling. If you're married and you have kids, too late. You just don't have that gift. You're already distracted. But having children, you enjoy a different gift from the Lord. It's a bundle of blessing. But it's not possible to spawn members of the new covenant simply through having children All must enter the new covenant, not by birth, but through faith and spiritual rebirth. Christians have a unique unique privilege of discipling their children, but uh, Christians are not producing saved humans by giving birth. Some of you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Never even worked that way under the old covenant. Only a remnant in Israel was ever saved under the old covenant. Uh, Parents don't have guarantees. They're given a responsibility to train up a child in the way he should go. I hope everyone had an opportunity to listen this past week to that message from Alistair Begg that I attached to our Wednesday uh, email that went out um, outstanding about raising, concerning the raising of children. Infants, infants are told, are, are, are born totally depraved. They are. If you don't, if you haven't listened to that yet, uh, get with me. I will get you a copy uh, attached to a text to you. <coughs> but is there a place in God's kingdom? Is there a promise for the eunuch extended under the new covenant? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He or a barren woman or a single person can procreate a race chosen by God a holy people, a people of God's own possession through evangelism. There's still procreation under the New Testament. The eunuch, he's not outside God's covenant of grace. He's actually learned from Philip in Isaiah 56 verse 3 that through faith in Christ, he is in. He's in. And therefore in verse 36... We read, as they went along the road and came to some water, the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? The answer for the eunuch today, with faith, nothing prevents you. Most of you will notice that verse 37 there is either has a footnote or it is contained in square brackets. That reveals that that verse it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts in the first centuries, uh, dated from the earliest centuries. Somebody added it along the way. That's why it's in brackets. Uh, that doesn't trouble me. Doesn't trouble me. Uh, I can defend believer baptism from any assortment of other passages in the Bible. Uh, in fact, even without using verse 37, I can defend believer immersion from our passage right here. 
Philip does not tell the eunuch, don't worry, we don't need to get wet like Jesus did. Just hand me your drinking flask and I'll sprinkle your head. Surely the eunuch would have carried some drinking water in his carriage through the desert. No, instead, Philip took him down into the water. Verse 38, the eunuch ordered the carriage driver to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and Philip baptized him, actually immersed him. That, that is the common and natural understanding of the word baptizo in the Greek. It is to immerse someone, to baptize them. Jesus was immersed. Mark 1 verse 9, uh, where he, he is described as coming up out of the water. Uh, John the Baptist, we're told in, in the Gospel of John 3 verse 23, uh, he chose locations to baptize, to baptize based on the fact that there is much water there. And full immersion was the earliest practice and symbolizes a full cleansing. Um, since Pentecost, baptism, Colossians 2 verse 2, uh, we, uh, tw- 2 verse 12, we are described as being buried with Christ in baptism, means buried beneath the surface, in which you were also raised up from the dead with him through the faith in the working of God. <clears throat> what a person's request for baptism symbolizes is I am being I am fully cleansed and raised from spiritual death into new life in Christ. And it is that faith that saves you. Baptism by immersion is not necessary for salvation. It is the original and scriptural practice of publicly professing your faith in Christ. <clears throat> Sprinkling or pouring on the top of the head of an infant. It does not damn anybody. But it is never seen nor prescribed in Scripture. So when we baptize here, I take you down into the water. Sometimes I bring you back up again. (laughs) And we see repeatedly the Scriptural pattern Uh, is for the individual to request baptism. We have had a request for baptism here. Uh, If you are interested, please speak to me, and we will get around to that probably just after Labor Day. Um, But Philip's full explanation of the gospel, combined with the eunuch's request, more than assures that baptism ought to include the intellectual assent, means the presence of mind of the believer who's pondered reasons as to why I am doing this and why I choose to be baptized. Uh, There is no example of infant baptism uh, in Scripture. There's no, no pattern at all of being baptized before you have expressed faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You you just don't see it in the Bible. um, So we don't do it here. This isn't that hard. Not saying you're saved by it. Not saying that anyone who's been infant baptism, baptized is damned. We're saying is we don't agree. It is the pattern we see in Scripture. Also, this is important. Nobody is adding their child to the new covenant by sprinkling their head with water. 
I, I'm sorry, that, that is a belief called covenant theology. It's very prominent in Presbyterianism. Um, I appreciate theologians like R.C. Sproul. have uh, been very helpful with the understanding of uh, Scripture and theology and, and, and Christianity. But you do not initiate your infant into the new covenant of God by sprinkling their head or pouring them with water. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work. It just doesn't happen in Scripture. Rather, the result, rather, is children being told they're Christian, that they belong to Jesus, uh, without them having ever first examining themselves. It's our belief here that the way it's taught here is sacred ordinances of water baptism and the Lord's Supper are reserved for those who can examine themselves and who have embraced Christ as Savior by faith. That's my estimation that the Lord's Supper and communion should only, or uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper should only be observed by believers who've been baptized. For those who've trusted in Christ, there, there must be much rejoicing after baptism. Verse 39 says, when Philip the eunuch came up out of the Philip and the eunuch came up out of the water the spirit of the lord snatched philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him but he went on his way rejoicing i've yet to see an infant going on their way rejoicing after they've been baptized actually they're usually crying and screaming it's a but the eunuch can rejoice because once he thought that he was excluded but now discovers in Jesus Christ he is included in the promises offered under a new and better covenant. Like the eunuch, you may have concluded for some reason or because somebody has told you something, you might have make it mistakenly concluded, I have no chance with God. I may not be a eunuch, but I've got some serious defects in my life. I've lived as a hippie. I wear sandals. You're welcome here. You might say that throughout my life I've sinned in grotesque ways. I I know there's no way I'm acceptable to God. Like this man had concluded the eunuch or how he had been told... You might conclude, I can't stand before the Lord. I I have a serious defect. You may have determined, you know, I wasn't born in a Christian home. I didn't have a good upbringing. No spiritual lineage exists in my family. None before me. None have come after. None of that matters. You don't inherit forgiveness from your parents. But by trusting in Christ as your Savior... That gospel call has gone out. And Christ, by His Spirit, is both seeking and saving the lost, not only on a desert road, even here today. You don't think you can be reached today? Oh, I promise God can reach you today. Listen to me. Under the old covenant, a eunuch could be no further from God. Under the new covenant, the eunuch is accepted, and so are you. Nothing prevents you from forgiveness of sins and the cleansing 
that God offers through his grace, nothing prevents you except you. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost, and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may, be li- that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Let's pray. Father, what amazing grace to pursue and to seek out and save what is lost. To go even to the ends of the earth, even as far as Port St. Lucie, beyond the desert, in order to save a people for yourself. Father, we ask that as the gospel is preached today, that forgiveness of sins is declared in your Son, that every single person here before they leave has embraced the forgiveness available to them. Or be glorified in this. May your Spirit work amongst us. May he teach us. May we listen to him. That your kingdom will continue to grow, the one that will have no end. And Lord, bless our meal as we go to eat and and share fellowship and encourage and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Oh Lord, thank you for the food and the abundance that you've already shown us. A shadow of the great things to come. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.